This is the Lions Unchained podcast, where the shackles of your mind are broken. It's not for the faint-hearted, but the chosen few who've embraced the call to leadership, dare to venture where others will not, and believe in God's supernatural power. Join Carl Joseph now for a life-changing word. Get ready to be unleashed into your destiny. Friend, there are two rivers that flow throughout history. One river is a river of life that leads to grace through faith. The other is a raging torrent of esoteric knowledge that leads to damnation of the souls of men. One river has its source in Antioch of ancient Syria, where they were first called Christians. The other has its source in Alexandria, Egypt, from which the mystery religions were propagated throughout the ages. One River has brought us the Geneva Bible and finally the King James Bible, which is the paragon of all Bible translations. And the other river provides a passage for the ancient mystery religions of Gnosticism or modern-day Freemasonry. Friend, Alexandria in Egypt was so called because it was named after Alexander the Great, who conquered the nation in 332 BC. Alexandria was one of the major centers of Greek thought. Its library was renowned for its size and dedication to housing the great Grecian classical works of Plato, Socrates, Aristotle, and Archimedes. Alexandria also appears to be the city of origin for heretical groups called the Gnostics, who originated around the beginning of the 2nd century AD. The word Gnostic comes from the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge. The Gnostics professed themselves to be wise, but in fact became fools as their pride blinded them. They saw their knowledge as a secret path to enlightenment by combining the philosophies of the Grecians with the ancient Hebrew scriptures. The Gnostics taught that Jesus Christ did not come in the flesh as the Son of God, but a God who incarnated in bodily form. To them, Jesus was merely a phantom or apparition with only the appearance of physical presence. They also disparaged existing apostolic writings and mixed the revelation of God with the contradictory Greek philosophies. Gnosticism did not include just one set of believers holding a unified set of doctrines. Instead, it presented a strange mix of groups espousing the equivalency of the modern New Age philosophy wrapped in a facade of Christianity. In fact, the Apostle John's epistles were a sharp rebuke to the Gnostics on the rise even in his time. Now, are you familiar, friend, with Psalm 12, verses 6 through 7? I'm going to read it for you now. The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace of fire, purified seven times. You shall preserve them from this generation forever. Now, it's interesting that God's word has been written in seven key languages throughout history, which are Hebrew, Aramaic, Greek, Old Syrian, Old Latin, German, and English, but they do not constitute purified translations as this scripture testifies. Friend, did you know this scripture has come to pass literally? But how might you ask? In order to attain the King James Version, there were seven refinements, and these refinements are reflected in the seven major English Bibles that were printed. We started out with Tyndale's Bible in 1526, and soon thereafter came Coverdale's Bible, then Matthew's Bible, then the Great Bible. Then we had the Geneva Bible, which was carried on the Mayflower, and the one that William Shakespeare used. Then we had the Bishop's Bible, and finally, 
the King James Bible. That's seven refinements to produce the very best version, which is the King James. Today, friend, I'm talking about the history of the Bible. The Bible is the single most important book of all time, selling an estimated 5 billion copies, and it's been translated into 349 languages. It's been outlawed, confiscated, and burned at different times in history, and it's even been smuggled into jail cells and across borders. John Huss was burned at the stake for teaching the Bible was the final authority for the church over any earthly church ruler's dictate. Then there was John Wycliffe in 1329 to 1384, who was the most eminent Oxford theologian of his day. He viewed the words of the Bible as the word of God, having supreme authority over any papacy's self-imposed and spurious claim of being Christ's vicar or true representative of God on earth. Wycliffe and his associates were the first to translate the entire Bible from Latin into English by 1382. Three decades after his death, his writings were officially banned by the Vatican, and the Pope had his remains exhumed and burned in 1428. Throughout the ages, the Catholic papacy were outraged that other translations of God's word were in existence other than their own. So outraged, in fact, that they would kill if anyone was found in possession of one. William Tyndale was strangled and burned for translating the Bible into English. But why? Because he made this bold declaration to a Catholic clergyman that if God will spare my life ere many years pass, I will cause a boy that drives the plough shall know more of the scripture than you do. Tyndale was born on the Welsh border between England and Wales in 1494. This brave man was, of course, the first to translate the New Testament into English from the original Greek text. Friend, we owe so much to William Tyndale, because did you know that Tyndale's Bible translation accounts for 80% of the New Testament and more than 75% of the Old Testament of what we now possess in the King James Version? When King James the Eleventh of Scotland became the King of England and adopted the name James the First in 1611, the King James Version of the Bible was completed. He commissioned 47 scholars to go back to the original Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic texts and translated the Bible to the best of their ability. The best translators were employed, friend, taking advantage of more than 5,556 manuscripts. The result was a crowning achievement of the Protestant movement of the time. The King James Version of the Bible was a thing of beauty, and without doubt the paragon or measuring stick of all Bibles, and the seventh purification in the refinement of God's Holy Word, as I mentioned previously. This Bible was translated from the Textus Receptus, which means in Latin, the received text. One person who should not go without mention is the Dutch scholar Desiderius Erasmus. He was instrumental in translating the Greek manuscripts of the New Testament into Latin and produced a Greek and Latin parallel Bible so the languages could be compared in 1516. He produced five editions, which served as the foundation for what became known as this Textus Receptus. Martin Luther then went on to form his own German translation from the second edition of Erasmus's Greek New Testament manuscript. This was the start of the Protestant Reformation, and William Tyndale later utilized this text to translate the Bible into English. 
Now, some people make out that we have a lack of manuscripts to validate the Bible in our possession today, but friend, we have 5,800 Greek New Testament manuscripts, which reflects the Textus Receptus in our possession today. In contrast, fewer than 1,600 ancient papyri of Homer's Iliad still exist, and about 250 manuscripts of Plato have survived. Friend, if you believe in the writings of Plato, as the professors in our university seem to worship, you should be 24 times more confident in the writings of the New Testament and the existence of Christ for that matter, because we have so many more manuscripts at our disposal. Any scientist should agree the abundance of manuscripts authenticates the value of the message contained therein as fact, not fiction, and part of our historical narrative. What's more, the earliest manuscripts of Plato date from 1300 years after he lived, yet we know the New Testament was completely written by approximately 100 AD, soon after the death of the Apostles. So its contents were hot off the press. Because of this, compared to other ancient literary works, the New Testament provides a voluminous measure of documentation and should never be questioned for its authenticity as a record of truth. Now, here is where the rubber meets the road, friend, in this broadcast, and I might even ruffle a few religious feathers when I share this information, and particularly if you've never heard it. Did you know that the source text for all modern Bible translations after the late 1800s does not stem from the same source text from which the King James Version was translated? And that's the reason why thousands upon thousands of words have been omitted or amended by the modern-day Bibles, as I mentioned in yesterday's broadcast. That's why the NIV has 33,681 fewer words than a King James Bible, for example. The reason for this is they were not even translated from the same underlying Greek texts or codices. Unfortunately, in the 19th century, a nefarious movement by scholars who were not even believers in God, for that matter, began to translate from other sources instead of the Textus Receptus, and in fact returned to the corrupt codices of that river that ran from occultic Alexandria in Egypt. The three corrupt codices are the Codex Sinaiticus, the Codex Vaticanus, and the Codex Alexandrius. Finally, two English scholars called Brooke Foss Westcott and Fenton John Anthony Hort came along. Westcott and Hort were also two Anglican churchmen who had contempt for Erasmus Greek New Testament text, also known as the Textus Receptus, because they didn't like what was written in it, even though it had been the basis for the true word of God for four centuries and the source text for the King James Bible. If ever there were two men who stuck a knife into the heart of God's word, it was this dastardly duo. Westcott and Hort created an entirely new Greek New Testament to reflect their own doctrines and ideas, but not based on the clear meaning of God's word, which they didn't like because they chose to change it instead of repenting and conforming to it. Based on what we now regard as the corrupt Vaticanus and Sinaiticus documents, these two men began a work in 1853 that 28 years later resulted in their version of the Greek New Testament. Now Westcott and Hort questioned Genesis and twisted the truth of God's word into something other than what the literal text said. They developed the revision committee of the Textus Receptus in 1870. They did two things. Number one, revise the English words of the King James Bible. And number two, revise the underlying Greek text by choosing the corrupt Vaticanus and Sinaiticus codices instead. 
one of which was found in a trash can in a monastery, and there is no mention of the scribes or the dates these documents were written. Several scholars believe that these corrupt texts came from Alexandria in Egypt, not Antioch. In fact, later, from published letters between Westcott and Hort, we find out exactly what these men really believed. Brooke Westcott was a Catholic and held Jesus and Mary worship as synonymous. John Hort was a fan of Darwin's Origin of Species and denied the Genesis account. They even sent their corrupt translation to the Vatican for approval because it was indeed based upon their source text in the first place. These were the authors of what became known as the Revised Version of the Bible. Now, not everyone received this revised version with approval, however, and many godly scholars and ministers at the time vehemently rejected it. Dean John Bergen said of it, quote, For this is nothing else but a poisoning of the river of life as its sacred source, and Westcott and Hort stand convicted of having deliberately rejected the words of inspiration on every page. When the revised version of the Bible was finally published in 1881 by Westcott, Hort, and the committee, Bergen went on to add, quote, The revision of 1881 must come to be universally regarded as what is most certainly the most astonishing as well as the most calamitous literary blunder of the age, unquote. Friend, if you have an ESV or NIV or NASB or NLT or any other modern-day translation in your possession, know this. These Bible translations stem from corrupt texts published by ungodly men like Westcott and Hort, even though they were widely accepted within academic circles in the early 20th century. Would you trust the wolf friend to guard the hen house? I don't think so. Likewise, would you trust men who deny many of the doctrines of the Bible to write another version of your Bible? I don't think so. But that's exactly what happened when Westcott and Hort duped the academic community with their degenerate text. And when you study their omissions and amendments in the modern day versions, you'll quickly realize there has been a deliberate and evil agenda to undermine the authority of Christ and his holy word. I know this topic has been heavy, friend, but I needed to share this with you for sure. You've been listening to Carl Joseph and the Lions Unchained podcast. Carl is a minister who has witnessed God's miraculous power to save, heal, and deliver. Carl covers topics such as geopolitics, current affairs, cults, societal trends, and end-time events, all through a biblical lens. Every Monday, new podcasts are uploaded, so stay tuned for the next opportunity to roar into victory. Check out carljosephministries.com for exciting articles, teachings, and discussion points. See you next week, and don't forget to hit the subscribe button.